0: visiting assistant professor at Cardozo's School of Law. We'll be discussing her article, Exit Engineering, which is forthcoming in the New York University Journal of Law and Business. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Rachel, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Rachel, I'm excited to talk in a moment about your article, Exit Engineering, but I wanted to first talk a little bit about you. My understanding is that you're going to be going on the law teaching market this fall. So I wanted to start this conversation with just an invitation to perhaps introduce yourself to any listeners who are at law schools out there that might be hiring this season. Could you tell us about your research and your teaching areas and perhaps what you bring to the table as a candidate on the law teaching market?
1: Thank you. As you mentioned, I am a visiting assistant professor at Cardozo, and I also run the School Center for Business Law there, the Heyman Center. And I joined academia after about a decade in the private sector. I was in private practice for about seven years as a technology transactions attorney in New York City. And then I spent a little over two years on the public policy team at YouTube. And my research sits at the intersection of business law and technology and focuses in on issues affecting entrepreneurship as well as technology companies generally as they seek to innovate. And it's mostly from a private law and contractual standpoint, but I also dabble in some public law frameworks. I taught professional responsibility this past year, as well as a tech transaction seminar that I developed. And this coming fall, I'm teaching contracts, and I'm really excited about that. While, as you mentioned, also going on the market for entry-level tenure-track positions. And my teaching interests broadly reflect my experience in both business and tech and IP.
0: All right. An exciting and probably busy a few months ahead of you. And for any listeners out there, keep an eye out for Rachel's entry into the FAR packet in the next few weeks. With that, I'd like to turn to this, this article, Exit Engineering. I wondered if you could introduce the core theory of the paper, which is that lawyers add value as transactions, engineers, particularly with advantage toward the exit stage of perhaps the startup lifecycle. Could you maybe introduce that theory at a high level for us?
1: Going back about four decades, Professor Ron Gilson wrote an article speculating about how business lawyers create value for clients given that a lot of what transactional lawyers are asked to do is not what one might consider like per se legal work, such as helping to resolve business issues in a negotiation or structure payment terms. And he develops this theory of the lawyer as a transaction cost engineer. And this is someone who helps parties break through negotiation stalemates in a way that optimizes the transaction costs of a deal and creates a more valuable transaction for both parties involved. And in his article back in the eighties, he uses the example of an earnout in an asset acquisition to prove his point. When parties disagree on the value of an asset and are at risk of walking away from a deal, the lawyer can parachute in, propose that the purchase price be paid out over time in connection with hitting certain milestones. So the buyer's protected from overpayment and the sellers protected from undervaluing. And as a result, both parties walk away happier, with more certainty the deal will close, fewer transaction costs incurred, and thus the lawyer has created meaningful value. And other scholars have built on this theory since then of how lawyers create value by optimizing transaction costs, including by examining how lawyers like facilitate regulatory arbitrage and deal making or structure enterprise joint venture agreements or even provide battle-tested forms for uses and financings. And all this scholarship here I found really interesting because each of these examples is about how lawyers are not just giving good legal advice or reallocating the pie, so to speak, between parties to get their clients good deals. But it's actually about minimizing the overall transaction costs associated with deals, or in other words, maximizing the value of those transactions for everyone involved. But I felt there were some underexplored aspects of business lawyering in the literature, what I broadly refer to as the value creation corpus, namely with respect to startup lawyers and the role that day-to-day lawyering and decisions play in optimizing the value of a company and the efficiency of a future strategic transaction, such as an M&A merger and acquisition event or an IPO exit which is indeed what I focus on, how lawyers use day-to-day ordinary course counseling throughout the life cycle of a company to maintain and actually increase the value of the future exit transaction. And as I'll mention, I also posit that kind of lawyering really contributes more broadly to the greater technology ecosystem.
0: You're extending existing theory and existing literature on the value creation that lawyering can provide by focusing on the role of the startup lawyer. Could you talk to the listeners about the role of the startup lawyer and maybe how it's different from, say, the public company M&A lawyer that perhaps Gilson had in mind in, in his article? What's the role of the startup lawyer? And what might my lawyer be doing for me, if I'm a startup founder, from the very early stages with an eye toward engineering The best possible exit with the lowest transaction costs, perhaps years in the future.
1: The startup lawyer is often thought of, or certainly I would think of it, as an outside general counsel for many startups who don't have in house lawyers. And then someone who's really managing the day to day legal matters for a client. I focus in particularly on the commercial startup lawyer who is tasked with helping clients figure out how best to develop and commercialize their products and services. And this is distinctive from the public company M&A lawyer who's focusing typically on one strategic transaction. And they may do a lot of those strategic transactions for a particular client and get to know their client that way. But they're less involved with just the day-to-day business operations and what is involved with really building the business from the ground up. For the startup lawyers, they may be doing things like making sure the company owns its intellectual property rights and has sufficient documentation from employees and contractors to prove as much. They might be making sure that the client isn't integrating open source software into their products in a way that will ultimately affect the value of the business and the ability to go through an exit to sell the business or IPO, as well as helping to manage with all the commercial contracts. That come into play with a startup, supplier agreements, service agreements, vendor agreements, as well as, of course, customer agreements. The lawyer is really there to make sure that those contracts don't include inadvertent landmines that are going to affect the future viability of the business. Startups have very little leverage in negotiations, typically with larger established counterparties. And the lawyer is going to help look out for where that leverage should be deployed in a way that's going to maximize the long-term value of the company. So that might be looking for hidden change of control provisions I'll chat about, I think a little bit later, buried in boilerplate assignment provisions or business restrictions that affect the company's organic growth potential, the non-compete or most favored nation pricing provision. And the lawyer in particular, I think, is really well-suited to recognize and address these problematic provisions or the, just how the decisions will affect the company's future trajectory. Because the lawyer has the benefit of being a repeat player in counseling, as well as in the subsequent exit transactions, the lawyer is going to know what that headache is going to look like when it comes into being down the line. The lawyer is also has the benefit of being disinterested in the company's short-term profits, which are often big motivating factors for startups in their decision-making. So they're able to kind of act as what some scholars would call a credible commitment device, helping the startup adhere to their long-term goals of a successful exit for both the founders and investors.
0: Those are some examples of what the startup lawyer is doing as an outside general counsel. I'd like to talk about the mechanism of your theory, your contribution to Gilson's theory or extension of Gilson's theory. You argue in the paper that the startup lawyer is providing value to clients, exit engineering value to clients well before that exit transaction actually occurs. Tell me about that process, that cycle, and how your article here is contributing to the broader literature and theory that Gilson got us started on back in the 1980s?
1: When we think about the startup lifecycle, there are some really key inflection points. The founding, for one, then hopefully subsequent venture financings, and then the exit, usually either an M&A deal or an IPO. And in the M&A and IPO process, there's going to be pretty significant diligence done on everything the company has done to date to identify any issues that might affect the company's valuation, its revenue potential and business operations, either the acquirer or the underwriter is going to take a really close look under the hood to find all those issues. And those issues are going to have to be dealt with in some fashion before the exit is completed and often at a meaningful cost to both parties. But in reality, there is another option to manage those issues, and that is back in time. At the moment they arose, as opposed to waiting until the exit transaction. And this is really the kind of the nut and bowl of my paper, because that's where the lawyer provides value by seeing the issues as they come up, getting ahead of them and remedying them in the ordinary course, day to day business in advance of the exit transaction. So when diligence does come around, it's pretty clean and the exit proceeds efficiently. Just taking a quick example with respect to intellectual property ownership. So there are default rules under copyright law about companies owning what their employees create in the scope of employment, even in the absence of any paperwork. And that would be really tempting for a startup to take advantage of rather than having to push paper in front of their early stage engineers. But the failure to get signed IP assignments for employees can have really gnarly effects in an M&A transaction. Because an acquirer is going to want the company to go back and get signed assignments from the employees. And those must be supported by additional consideration to be enforceable. So that's money out of pocket that probably did not have to be spent, but also the exercise of simply having to find former employees can delay closing. And then the inquirer is going to have to review the assignments for sufficiency and so forth. The parties may also find themselves negotiating bespoke indemnification provisions and reps and warranties in the acquisition agreement. It's not out of the realm of possibility that an acquirer might walk away from a deal altogether, depending on the importance of the affected IP. And then conversely, in an IPO, the parties might find themselves negotiating tailored risk factors and engaging in additional back and forth with the SEC for review. So there's this whole litany of additional costs that come up that are going to make the exit transaction less valuable or less certain just because the company didn't get the assignment signed as an ordinary course matter. And this is not purely hypothetical. We see these closing provisions and publicly filed M&A deals all of the time or conversely relevant risk factors drafted in registration statements for IPOs. When I present the paper, I show the language from the Facebook acquisition of WhatsApp. Facebook bought WhatsApp for billions of dollars, but they didn't close until WhatsApp went out and got a bunch of confirmatory assignments signed. Enter the exit engineer, the startup lawyer, who solves for all these future costs by simply arming clients with very standard, off-the-shelf form IP assignments at the time of founding and advising the client of the consequences of not having them signed. And in doing so, avoids all of those extra costs that are not really going to arise until years in the future. So the value is created when the issue arises, even if it's not realized until the future exit. Looking at business lawyers through this lens of how their ordinary course day to day work affects the future value of a company, going back to your question about how this fits into Gilson's theory, I seek to really expand Gilson's original theory and show that lawyers don't just create more valuable deals when they swoop in for a discrete transaction, but that they're able to, over time, create more valuable companies and more valuable and more certain exit transactions. And I think this perspective allows us to look more broadly at the effect of startup lawyering on the wider ecosystem, because when the lawyer's actions years or months prior to an exit end up saving both parties to an exit transaction money and resources, that leaves more of the proceeds to be redistributed back to the investors, the venture capital funds who are returning those profits to their partners who we hope are making subsequent investments in really cool, new, innovative technologies. So the lawyer's role in helping to facilitate efficient exits is about much more than just getting a deal done. It's also about ensuring maximum funds available for reinvestment into entrepreneurship. And I'll add, I get this question often when I present the paper about startup failures. For venture capital-backed companies who ultimately fail, and unfortunately there are many of those, I think the theory still holds. When tech startups fail, their assets are often sold off, and the cleanliness of their business operations is still relevant to those sales and the returns to investors as well as any founders.
0: Your article, I think, raises a really interesting point about the temporal nature of transaction costs in this context because at the exit stage, when a company is being sold or when it's going public, the role of the lawyer is a pretty small expense compared to the value that it creates. It's a pretty small transaction cost all in. But at the startup stage, when resources are scarce for the startup and there are a lot of resource demands, the cost of legal services is a pretty high expense. Just considering the marginal cost of spending a dollar on being prepared for a future exit Versus spending that marginal dollar on getting prepared to grow quickly, grow the business into something that will actually be able to exit in the future. How do lawyers and startup clients manage this kind of temporal misalignment that exists between the needs at the startup, the early founding stage versus the exit stage?
1: This is a really important question because I understand the hesitancy to engage counsel because of expense. I represented startups. For years, you can't have a conversation with a startup client without also knowing that they are thinking about the bill. Everything I identify in the article as being an opportunity for a startup lawyer to add value is, from my experience, objectively low cost, providing forms, off-the-shelf advice, deploying standard, reasonable, industry-tested, compromise positions. And so from my perspective, the short-term cost is actually quite low, and it's more about getting the clients over the mental hurdle of having to call a lawyer and recognizing the bill may not actually be $1,000 in return. But I also think it makes sense for startups to consider the broader trade-off. The short-term costs of handling issues in the ordinary course are much easier to quantify and predict. Then it is to determine how big of an issue something is going to be to an unknown future, most likely larger counterparty who will have the upper hand in negotiations, whether that's an acquirer or an underwriter for an IPO. And it's impossible to know what relative importance that exit counterparty is going to place on any particular diligence issue or the lengths to which they'll require a company go to fix the issue. And the resulting deal costs of leaving the issues to be remedied at the time of exit are unknown, as is deal certainty. Minimizing the issues in advance means, I think, that there's more of a chance the deal is completed. And that's pretty compelling. One of the worst things that can happen is watching a deal die because of decisions made in the ordinary course years earlier that became too expensive or cumbersome to remedy on the back end. And there's also the risks of externalities affecting the market for exit transactions. Fixing these diligence issues takes time. Having to get consents or IP assignments is an exercise in chasing third parties. And during that time, the IPO market might dry up. Interest rates might make it undesirable for an acquirer to get financing to close a transaction. A global pandemic might happen and cause a lot of instability in the financial market. So there's a whole host of unquantifiable risks and potential costs that come up with waiting until an exit to fix issues. It's really not just about legal fees. It's also about the certainty of completing that exit transaction. When I was in practice, I was often surprised at the issues that caused transactions to come to a grinding halt. But more often than not, those issues could have been managed much earlier in the company's life cycle.
0: Are there any key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this interview or from the paper? And has this article perhaps spurred any open research questions for you for future exploration?
1: When we think of business lawyering, I think, but we should think as much about the everyday lawyering as much as we do about the headline grabbing strategic transaction counseling. And I focus in on VC-backed companies because I think there's a really great story to tell about the role of the lawyer in facilitating investments throughout the broader tech sector. But what underlies my argument is that lawyers are well situated to help build meaningful value in companies, and that's true whether or not they are VC-backed or headed for an exit. This was a really fun project for me, and certainly as I was prepping to teach professional responsibility for the first time, as it got me thinking about lawyering. And the critical frameworks that we put in place around the practice. In terms of research coming out of this paper, specifically, I'm interested in digging into the startup failure point that I made a few minutes ago about exit transactions, although I guess they're not really an exit, some other kind of off ramp. When startups die and their assets are sold off, That I'd like to explore my theory in that context a bit more. Much of my research will also just zero in on the different types of contracts and issues that I focus on in the paper throughout. And my next project, which is my job talk paper is about another, I would say passion of mine where I zero in on one of the types of contracts that I do mention in exit engineering, which are copyright licenses. And I examined the lack of innovation and consumer choice in downstream online content distribution markets, specifically looking at how rights holders in highly concentrated copyright industries have collectively sought to stifle innovation in those downstream markets following the disruption that those industries face from piracy and other technological changes. So there I take a close look at the music industry in particular and how the major record labels use a combination of formal parallel contracting practices in their licenses with streaming services that are maintained through informal self-enforcement norms to collectively control the subscription streaming market. And I compare that to the approaches taken by book publishers and movie studios in seeking to claw back control from third-party distributors in their respective online downstream markets. And I'll add, it's been a particularly fun project to embark on this summer with so much debate going on about how revenues are allocated from streaming between the institutional rights holders and the creators and the artists and the actors and the
0: inputs. Our guest today has been Rachel Landy, visiting assistant professor at Cardozo School of Law. We've discussed her article, Exit Engineering, which is forthcoming in the New York University Journal of Law and Business. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Rachel, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much.